Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today I'm joined by Deacon Don Weigel. I've invited Deacon Don here to talk a little bit more about the Synod. We're going to continue on from last episode. Um, welcome. Welcome like you. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate it. How did you go from being a newborn into this world into entering holy orders? What was your faith journey like? Wow. Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, how old I am, is I, I, I grew up in the 60s um, and uh, Queen of Martyrs Parish out in Chictawaga here uh, as a suburb of Buffalo. And, um, you know, I had, I had some thinkings about, you know, possibly, you know, being, you know, the life of ministry and ordination and everything. And in fact, by the time I was in college, I was seriously contemplating joining the Franciscans. Um, but I also fell in love. <laughs> Not just with the Franciscans, but with a woman. So she won out. Yeah. <laughs> and I got married. Um, but I always kind of kept that that feeling of wanting to be more more connected, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, so for me, it was a matter of finding ways to live my faith through my work life in the business world and stuff. You know, one of my favorite days when I was working was a day when I was meeting with somebody in the company. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking about something, she said to me, well, you're Catholic, right? And I didn't have anything on the walls of my office. I didn't have a big crucifix hanging around <laughs> my neck or anything like that. But there was just something about, I don't know, the way that I spoke, the way that I, I mean, I, you know, I didn't go around handing out the gospel or anything. Um, and I thought, man, that, that felt so comforting. It was such a compliment, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, and I thought, well, I must be doing something right. And then I was, um, I was in business and uh, working. I was living here, long story about all that, but I was living, moved back to Buffalo after living in New York for a dozen years. Um, and then um, I felt this call to the diaconate, um, just kind of out of the blue, you know. And so um, at the time I was traveling back and forth for my job from here to Richmond. Back and forth. Okay. I'd leave on Sunday, come home on Friday. Leave on Sunday, come home on Friday. Yeah, I did that for years. And um, realized when I felt this call to the academic between the formation weekends and the study, I couldn't do both. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought, oh, here we go again. I mean, here's another big decision. So... <laughs> Um, so subsequently, uh, subsequently, uh, something happened at, at work that, uh, um, that really just kind of brought the whole decision to me. And I thought, no, you know what? The diaconate wins out. So I quit my job. So I just quit my job and decided to do ministry full time. So it, it pays a lot less. Yeah. Ever so slightly. <laughs> like, like zero. You know? What was that? Uh, how was your response like from your family and your friends? Because I know, at least for me, like I have a lot of my friends and family are not Catholic. Mm -hmm. So when I said I'm leaving my job that pays me a lot of money to go work for pennies at a Catholic church, they, they were like, "Really? Why do you not want to eat dinner tonight? Like, do you like ramen noodles?" And I'm like, eh. "You know, it's hard to get into the reasons why." But yeah, well, it's funny because I, you know, I was I was like in my home office. Um, reading when this, you know, when I felt the call and, and I, I went downstairs and my wife was sitting at the kitchen table and I said, um, I have to be a deacon. And she looked at me and she said, 
okay. <laughs> what does <laughs> what that, does that mean? mean? Exactly what she said. And I said, I don't know. Uh, there was an information session like three weeks later, and then psh, I was off to the races. But what was amazing was that um, I knew that it was the right thing because everyone that I spoke to, like, like everybody at, at work, when I said that I was leaving the, the, uh, leaving the company to be, uh, to be a deacon, people's reaction was always the same, was like, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was nobody that said, really, you? Yeah. You know, which would have been a real, uh, made me question. But my family's reaction was was very much the same. It's like, yeah, you know, Dad, we, that makes sense, you know. And so I can see that. So, so following anyone's ordination to the diaconate, you get a parish assignment, you get a ministry of charity. Right. What was your first ministry of charity and parish assignment? Yeah, my, uh, I had, I had been a, a parishioner at Immaculate Conception in East Aurora okay. for a while, and they supported me through my formation. You know, they were very, pra- I mean, they prayed with me, and uh, they were just wonderful, followed me through the whole thing. So I, I stayed there, and luckily there, was, there wasn't there was a deacon there already. So um, so one day they didn't have one, next one, next day they did. <laughs> you know, and it was the same guy they knew, but uh, uh, so I was, that was my liturgical assignment. But my first uh, ministry of uh, charity and justice was to work for the um, to volunteer at the public policy office at Catholic Charities. Okay. And so my responsibility, one of the things that was my responsibility was to organize these uh, annual days that we had when we would gather people from around the diocese, load them in a bus uh, early in the morning, and go out to Albany. Um, and uh, then we would spend a day meeting with the state legislators, and we would be advocating the, off of the agenda that was developed by the New York State Catholic Conference, okay. so the political arm of the U.S. of the uh, New York bishops. So they would always come out with a, an agenda. You know, we wanted um, we wanted advocate for this for the poor. We want to advocate this for the prisoners. We want to advocate for this. You know, with regard to life issues, we want to. You know, so it was always these things that we got a chance to talk to the state legislators about. Um, And so in addition to all of that, I also did kind of a weekly, what I called a justice update, where I would just people let people know um, what kind of issues there were in, in, uh, in social justice things, you know, whether it was rights of workers or immigration or whatever. And Mm -hmm how they could advocate on behalf of people who were on the margins. So that was my very first, um, that was my very first one. It may have escaped your memory, but in 2015, I was on your public policy trip. Oh, were you? Okay, As there a, you go. So you know well what I it do. was like. Okay. As a junior at St. Francis, okay. I went with, uh, oh, with Rory Reichenberg, with Rory Reichenberg right? yeah, okay. my hero. And uh, six of us went. I remember this convent put us up overnight. Yeah. We stayed with some sisters and we spent the day in Albany. Yeah. This and, the, uh, the sisters of Canada. Uh, um, Rondelet. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, beautiful facility. Be- exa- yeah. They were very hospitable. I, I expect nothing less from a group of sisters. Yeah. Again, but but right. yeah, that was um, that was really my first. So you experienced. Taste of, so you know exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. And may have not been the direct reason, but I went in the minor in political science in college. Okay. But that was my first taste of like the Washington politics experience. Yeah. And 
boy, did it change my opinion on a lot of things. Yeah. It's so much goes over our heads in day-to-day life in the world that we just, we, we, we become so robotic watching the six o'clock news. Yes. Great. Oh, that sucks that that's happening. And then we just move on with our day. And you make a really important point because, um, I'm now the diocesan director for Catholic Relief Services. Okay. And um, two of the things that, I mean, Catholic Relief Services is the uh, the official um, humanitarian aid organization of the U.S. Catholic community. So you have Catholic charities working within the bounds of the United States. You have Catholic Relief Services working everywhere else throughout the world. And one of the things we do is fundraising for, you know, for the programs for, for people around the world, the same way the Catholic Charities does. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that we do, and we're trying to emphasize more and more all the time, is that advocacy. You know, I, I mean, people need to speak for the voiceless, you know, and and that's what we're about at, at, at CRS, is developing people, helping people find that voice where they can speak for the poor around the world, especially to the uh, legislators here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the things that will be coming up for a vote next year is the Farm Bill. And in the Farm Bill, there's there's international aid. There is what what we used to call food stamps, um, you know, SNAP benefits. Um, And all those things, there's things in there that, um, you know, that affect the poor. And so, you know, we want to raise people's awareness that, Everybody sitting out in the pews has a responsibility to speak up, you know, I and what, think, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then one of the easiest things we can do, it, and I love parishes that put it in their bulletin, is the New York State Catholic Conference of Bishops has that action tab on their website. Yes, that's right. It takes 13 seconds that's right. to send a letter. And yep. you don't, if every single person in a pew did that, legislation would look completely different in the right. state. U.S. The U.S. bishops have the same thing. CRS is the same thing. It's you know, and and it's and as you point out, it's so simple. You sign up for the alerts. They say, hey, there's this thing coming up for a vote. Tell your senator to vote in favor of this. You know, and and so. Um, Before yeah. we started talking, we talked about Deacon Joe, and that's one of the things he does. He sends out a mass email to like everyone in the parish whose email he has. Big like, oh, right. new alert! He forwards the alerts, and it takes ten seconds. Right. Exactly. I do it while I'm sitting at my computer. Where anyone can do that. I don't care if you're an accountant. Yeah. You own a restaurant or you work in ministry. You can take ten seconds to answer right. an email. And and one of the things that I will tell you, and this is this is where we want to educate people. One of the things that I will tell you is that um, it's important not just to advocate for that issue because. If they get a lot of form emails coming in, that's fine because they hear the people's voices and that's you mm-hmm. know and that people are raising their voice. But if you take the if you take the time to put in something a little personal, it makes a huge difference. You know, it's not just hey, I want you to vote for this, but it's I'm concerned about this because yeah, or how this you know, has affected my how life. How this has affected my life, or why, or even just I'm a Catholic. You know, and my church teaches that, you know, whatever, or in the Gospel of Matthew or so, whatever, you know, you're coming from that speaks to you personally makes a huge difference in the form email. That, and this is exactly what we're going to get into with Vatican II and the fall off from that is empowered. That's where the lady were empowered. We have that's to right. go out in our nine to fives and speak up. Yeah, Because absolutely. priests and bishops can't show up at Arby's and do that. Yeah. It's our responsibility <laughs> to do that for that yeah. 17-year-old at Arby's to change things for the better, whether it's yeah. in labor laws, whether it's just in the way people are acted, treated. and Right. right. So 
you have, you are in charge or co-chairman of the Synod Department for the Diocese, I guess. Right, what right. would your official title? Yes, um, uh, Miss Carrie and Mrs. Carrie Frank and I were the co-leads for the diocesan participation in the Synod on Synodality. How did the bishop wrangle you into that? Because if I got a call from 795 <laughs> and they offered me that, I'd say you have the wrong number. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... So, um, so last fall... Um, I hadn't had the opportunity to speak to the bishop about, because he, I mean, he just had so many things mm -hmm. when, he was, when he was new. So, so about eight months into, into his, uh, his presence here, I, I finally got an opportunity to speak to him about CRS, about, I wanted to, you know, let him know. I mean, it's a, it's an arm of the U.S. bishops, so it's kind of his thing, you know? So yeah. He, he, he needs to know what's happening. He needs to know what's happening. Right. So, um, so I, I sat down with him and I told him and he was, just incredibly, you know, as anyone who knows Bishop Mike would, would understand, he was just incredibly supportive. And how about if we do this and let's do that? And how about if we grow this? And all of, and, um, and then, you know, there was a knock on the door. It's like, Bishop, you, you know, your next thing. I said, well, I better get going. He said, eh, take your time. <laughs> so they can wait. <laughs> it's like, okay. So I sat there for a moment and he said, he said, I wanted to ask you something else. He said, uh, what do you know about the Synod? I said, well, uh, you know, I mean, I've read some things about what's what's going on. I know that it was just opened in October. This was like late October, early November. I said, I know that, you know, that you just had a mass opening the Synod and Pope Francis had a mass opening the Synod mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And he said, yeah, he said, I would like you to be the co-lead for the Synod in the Diocese. And I thought, uh, maybe I shouldn't have had an in-person meeting. <laughs> yeah, this could have been done over email. <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, well, um, I said, I'm inclined to say yes, Bishop, because the Bishop asked me. Yeah, <laughs> so, there's that darn um, obedience thing. Yeah, right. So I said, uh, but I'd really like to pray on it. And he said, absolutely, absolutely. So then there was like a little quiet for a moment, and he said, are you done praying? <laughs> <laughs> and then he left, you know, and he said, he, this was like on a Thursday. He said, take the weekend. He said, let me know, let me know on Monday what, what you yeah. decide. So that's, yeah, that's how I uh, got into it. I'm sure you remember Bishop Head better than I do, but I've heard a lot of stories about Bishop Head where he would call priests and be like, you know, Father, I really want you to go to Attica. <laughs> and then they'll tell him, like, you know, Bishop, I really want to pray on it. He's like, okay, pray and call me back on Friday and tell me you're leaving for Attic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> call back, you know, when God tells you yes, call, call me back. Right, and, uh, exactly. <laughs> that's incredible that that's how, uh, you know, that's a bishop. That's what I want. Yes, There's yeah. that power, you know, like, I'm not asking you, I'm telling yeah. you what you're doing and you're going to do it. It's, um, it's interesting, though, because, uh, because it was clear from Bishop Mike, that if I really had reservations, he'd understand. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like you will do this or else kind of thing. I started so. the uh, World Youth State Diocesan Committee with Ted Musco last year when he was here, and Ted's okay. recently departed. Right. And that's how that conversation went. He just left the diocese. He's still alive. He's still alive. Yes, for clarification, <laughs> Ted is doing fine and well in New York, and God bless him. Yeah. But that's how the bishop and me and Ted, that conversation went. He's like, oh, well, it would just make sense if you continued this. And uh, that's what I'm expecting. I'm like, yeah. oh, well, you know. And he's like, so, yeah, but you, you know. I'm like, okay, yes, fine. So here I am still coordinating, yeah. working on coordinating domestic world youth day events for next year. And luckily yeah. I have time to 
put that off. Yes. I have 10 months to come up with something because <laughs> I've gotten nowhere. But sticking up with the Synod, why don't you kind of, in, in, if, if you can do your best in two minutes from when we launched last October to now, can you recap the last year of the Synod and kind of what's happened? Yes. Um, in, that, in that time, we have, um, we organized, we knew that we had a deadline of the end of June mm-hmm. where we had to submit a report to the U.S. Conference of Bishops. So within the time, we didn't actually get started until February 1st. But within that time, between February 1st and the end of, and the end of June, uh, we were able to train 33 facilitators. Uh, we held 35 listening sessions. And we put out there, we decided to, knowing that we couldn't cover the uh, geographic expanse of the diocese, what we chose to do was to focus on what we called the distinct voices. Uh, And so we made sure that we gathered people together who were like-minded or like-experienced or had something else that that they had in common other than geography. Mm-hmm. So we had uh, we had listening sessions with the African-American community, with the Hispanic community, with people who work with refugees, with, um, with women. We had a few sessions for women. We had sessions with, you know, so you get the idea. We had a yeah. number of sessions with youth, as you know. We had yeah, one, of one, them, here. one of them here in the, in the parish. Um, so that was... That was our idea: is to is to hear people who came from the same perspective rather than the same geography. So, some of the feedback I've heard, not only locally but just reading national news about the Catholics, was that exact. I understand the limitations, and you can't talk to everyone like you want. You couldn't just put a survey in everyone's bulletin and get a good response. It needed to be done on a personal basis. Right. But there were a lot of people that felt like those distinct voices are great. But if I look in my pews, and 95% of the people don't fall into any of those categories. We have a middle-class white suburban parish in Lakeview. Mm -hmm. There wasn't something for your average parent, 45, 65-year-old. Was that just because we really needed to focus on certain issues, or was it more of a someone had to make a decision, and this is the decision that was made? No, and we actually had had four... Um, we actually had four sessions. That they were just were generic, right? Just generic. Okay. Come one, come all. You know, absolutely, absolutely anybody by Zoom and in person, uh, so that people who either didn't want to travel or didn't feel comfortable um, being with you know um, in these times of COVID would be able to still attend. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we had a couple of those sessions as well, um, and I was at and I was at a couple of those, and they were. Um, it was interesting because there there were a certain um, there were certain issues that came up with some of those distinct voices groups and what, that was we actually put out a, a document that is still on our Buffalo website um, our synod website in the diocese where we summarized what those different groups had to say. Mm-hmm. But they weren't that different from just the generalized groups, you know. I mean, people are people. Too. There, there were certainly experiences that, you know, where we where we heard from the African American community about, um, you know, about the about the existence of of so much lack of diversity and understanding um, 
I mean, our, our diocese is like 96% white. Yeah. You know, and so, um, you know, and so their perspective of feeling really other um, in, so, in so many ways. But we all, one of the reasons that we did that too was that Pope Francis and his directives for the Synod um, wanted to make sure that, that whoever was running these sessions was reaching out to the margins, was reaching out to people who you may not otherwise hear from. And so we thought, well, let's, let's pick up groups, you know, and, yeah. let's, and, and let's make sure that we're including um, different groups that makes, that makes sense so that we hear all the voices we can. I was really happy to see young adults specifically because my generation is the next generation of priests and parents who are going to raise the church. Yeah. Like not, I understand the future talk, but it's happening. I'm 24. I have friends who are in the seminary, friends who have kids who are putting them through baptismal classes now. And yeah. it was good that we addressed this generation. Yeah. But there's so much wisdom in the older. I've learned so much from parishioners, daily masters who are in their eighties who spend all day in the chapel praying mm-hmm. rosary. And I, I hope they, I tried my best to give out the paper, you know, technology and the old elderly don't go yeah. <laughs> hand in hand. So I tried to give out paper, those paper surveys, like just jot down some thoughts. I'll do all the, the legwork for you because I didn't want that stuff to go overlooked. They live right. through so much. They live through journeys of grace. If, if we're talking Buffalo specifically, they live yeah. through the closing of Catholic schools. They live through parish mergers. They live through vocation crises. Like mm-hmm. they know what that's like. Yeah. We only know that, but they remember a church before that. And right. I don't, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I only know the church that's in a heap of hot water and that's all. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's going to change soon. But and, yeah. And that's one of the things that was reflected in our report. Um, in, in fact, we, um, there were a number of things that were matters of consensus and there were, uh, when we looked at all these, diff- you, you can only imagine after 35 sessions and everything that we heard, trying to consolidate this into a 10-page report was... Um, I'm surprised you managed to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, well, and the result of it is, is that it gets to be a little dense in the sense that, you know, it doesn't read like a novel. I mean, you really kind of have to spend time with it, you know, and, and, and kind of read it and there are some sometimes sentence after sentence is really packed you know it's like there's not a lot of throwaway you know and breaking it up into this you almost i felt like each chapter read each chapter read as an individual group of people which i think helped address the issues but i also saw the overlap which gave me hope that the african-american community and the young adults are both concerned with bankruptcy yeah, it's a real thing. Right, it's not right. just affecting one person or the other. And exactly. And that's and that's why we decided that, that the way that we did the reporting was we, we reported by themes, if you will. And and so we decided to break it into um, because we uh, because Carrie and I kept talking when we when we started to looking at the results. We were talking about some of the things that were like, man, I was really surprised when I heard X or Y. So the more often we said that, we put that into a whole section. What, what surprised us? <laughs> you yeah. Know? And, and because there were some things that, you know, like, for example, um, we, we knew that there was anger and distrust and apathy as a result of the abuse crisis. Absolutely. Um, but I think we were surprised at how deep it ran. Uh, we, knew that, uh, we knew that there was a polarization in the church that mimics to some extent the polarization in our country. But we were surprised that it was as pronounced as it was, you know? 
Um, and so those kinds of things were the things that, uh, and you read the, the national report, and it reads the same way. Yeah. You know, that polarization, they spoke about the same way that we did. That kind of apathy and anger over the abuse crisis that we still haven't dug ourselves out of. You know, it's the same from Maine to to, um, to California, just the same way that it is in the diocese. So there were a lot of things that were brought up that I would say are issues that are dealing with the local church. We talk about the local church, but there are issues that came from the Vatican. I know these documents being read by all the bishops, and then the Pope is eventually ideally going to read this great report, and I'm sure he's going to publish a document on it and stuff, right? Right. Um, how did you handle choosing to report things to the bishops that almost you knew couldn't change because it's a higher issue? Yeah. I'll take the modo proprio on the Latin Mass, for example, because that's right. been a hugely talked about issue. Right. And I, I won't lie. I go to Latin Mass. I love it. I'm, most of my friends do. That's where, that's our thing. Yeah. I don't feel the need to voice my opinion to the, my local bishop about it because he can't do anything about it. So when you got stuff like that that you knew – Bishop Mike can't do anything about this. He's only one person. How did you discern whether or not to include it or not, I guess? Yeah, that's a great, that's a really good question. Well, we, uh, because we wrestled with that. And so uh, what we did was we, um, we decided to end our document with um, a summary and what we call, what we named a call to action. And so we said, we have a call to action in, in three directions. Number one, to the universal church. So Pope Francis, if you're listening, yeah. and you know, and the Synod of Bishops, the big Synod of Bishops, if you're listening, here's what we heard. You know, we we heard things about uh, about larger roles for women, um, really expanded roles for women. Some some of it became uh, some of it became uh, expressed as getting uh, getting women, uh, ordaining women as deacons, for example. The underlying part of that is, is making sure that women have a lot more responsibility and authority in the church rather than cleaning the pews. You know, actually making responsive, uh, uh, responsible decisions. So those kinds of things, you know, just some of the, some of the issues on sexuality, yeah. you know. Um, a huge hot topic now. In, enormous. You know, the there are certain things that we can do on a local level in terms of how we how we approach the LGBTQ community, um, but in terms of what the church the church says about it, again, that's out that's out of our hands. So that was so we took those kinds of things and said, Universal Church, this is on you. Mm-hmm. Okay. The second the second direction was the USCCB. Um, because there were things that were said that we thought can be solved um, and were directly were, were directly pointed towards the U.S. bishops. Lots of people talked about um, uh, needing a consistency of message from, from the U.S. bishops. And in addition to a consistency of message, they wanted to hear more about they wanted to hear more about what the church teaches about the things that they're looking at every day. You know, it's like, so you have, so you have a governor in Florida shipping immigrants, shipping asylum seekers 
out of his state and dumping them in another state, what should I think about that as a Catholic? Mm-hmm. Where's the church telling me how to react to that? Or where or why are our bishops not doing anything about it? Right, exactly. So that's, you know, and again, that's something Bishop Mike, you know, I mean, he can speak about it, but it needs to be kind of the U.S. church. Absolutely. Talking about those kinds of things that are U.S. issues, immigration issues. And, I mean, they've, they've always been very vocal in terms of abortion, but so many, so many other things. I mean, we, we just had, there's, there's going to be more executions in Texas. You know, where, where are the bishops talking about, and they have, they have spoken before, you know, but where is their voice again? in terms of being against the death penalty? Where are they in terms of racism? Maybe it's, I mean, there was a 2018 document about racism, but they had, they need to reinforce it over and over again. So that was the second direction. Although you and I both understand the power of the Episcopacy, and I, I do want to touch upon Lumen Gentium and kind of how the, that leads to this. I think there's a direct correlation from Vatican II to this synod that Francis yeah. is doing. But we know the bishops have so much autonomy and voice like they are such a high power seat in of themselves but there's a a natural understanding amongst catholics not only distrust what happened but just people don't do well with authoritative figures yeah do you think part of reason these aren't addressed is because they know writing a letter people are going to get in the mail and throw it out and it's not going to change anything because I've accredited a lot of quietness from the bishops that they just know that's not going to care because they're going to have parish priests who are just going to go the other way from them. There's the problem. (laughs) The letter (laughs) in the mail mail is not the problem. The real problem is that, uh, frankly, the bishops do publish a lot of statements about a lot of these things. And let's be realistic. How many people in the middle pew, as I call them, are going to go to the U.S. bishops' website and say, gee, I wonder what the bishops said today. Exactly. It's not going to happen, right? So it's not, there's nothing, you know, we talk about pull and push technology, right? There's nothing pulling people into those websites except for church geeks, like, you know, like maybe you and me and some other people that... People who actively spend their time reading our ministry and stuff, right? So kind of the full time. Where it needs to happen is in the parishes. Where it needs to happen is that it needs to be brought up in the pulpit, out of the ambo, in the homilies about what's going on, about what the bishops have said, so that people aren't just coming to Mass on Sunday and hearing another kind homily about praying more. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with prayer. But there's other there's issues. There's a be whole done. lot of other things. Yeah. And, so, and so it needs to... To some extent, what people were saying, what needs to happen is when the bishops speak, the bishop, our bishop locally, needs to find a way to communicate, and that was part of what they said about communication, needs to find a way to communicate that to the people in the diocese, and the best way to do that is through the parish priests and through the parish experience. So. Which Somehow is a figuring that out. super hard thing to do, because I thought about this. The last time Bishop Mike sent out a letter, was it maybe a month ago, oh, it was for a catechetical Sunday. Yeah. And he, the instructions were in replace of the hum. You know, during the homily time, this is to be, and I think that's good, because that's when you know the most people are there who are going to hear it. Right. The problem with it is the rubrics and the missiles say nothing should replace the homily. 
Yeah. So you had a lot of people who were like, I experienced preset weekend who were like, I'm not getting, giving up my homily because this letter has to be read. And I ju- I sympathize with them because they're just trying to follow the rules of the greater church. I also sympathize with the bishop who understands if I, again, post this on our Facebook page, how many people are realistically going to sit down and read it and actively make a change in their life? So it's a hard balance. How do yeah. you, over, you know, and that's the problem with part-time, I, I call them part-time Catholics. Yeah. People who are going to be in the pew every single Sunday and give you their 20 bucks and buy their chicken barbecue ticket. Great human beings. But they're not going to be Catholics Monday through Friday. Well, I think, you know, I, I'm not so harsh on them because they... Um, because they're there, mm-hmm. and and they want to do the right thing. Um, the problem is that I, I think, to a great extent, they're not. Um, we're not helping them along. We're, that you know, to get back to how this relates to the to the rest of the synod is, you know, we've we've continued to move away from the very beginnings of where we were as a church, you know, and and that's part of what. Francis wants to capture here is to go back to this. That's why it's a synod on synodality. It's about journeying together. It's it's about and I've got a, I've got a quote that I want to read in a, in a few minutes, but it's a it's about everyone taking co-responsibility for the church. Well, even when people in the recent past, let's say, have have asked for and raised their hand to take co-responsibility, many times they've been denied. And so it's going to take some time to really have a fuller participation of the laity, not just on committees and stuff, but on real partnership and collaboration with the clergy in this whole, and that's one of the big things that came out of this, uh, came out of the synod sessions as well. People are looking for and are willing for a clergy lay partnership and co-responsibility for the mission of the church. Absolutely. You know, and so, and so that becomes, you know, that kind of being, so the people that come in and give their 20 bucks and and buy the chicken dinner tickets, um, many of them have never been asked. They've never been allowed. They've never been challenged. They've never been called to conversion to be something other than Sunday Catholics. If, if what they get is very palliative homilies of like, be kind, you know, and say your prayers. Thumbs up Jesus, my favorite. Yeah, right, you know, it's, now, let's stand, now let's stand for the creed. You know, that, that doesn't help. That doesn't help them engage with the depth of the faith of what it means to be a Catholic seven days a week and, and, and not just one. Because we have a Pope and a Synod moving in that direction of the return to the Church where everyone has this co-responsibility, how do you still leave something in the Church for the people who just want to be, I don't want to say just pew-sitters, but people who have this, I just want to go, I want a priest to give me my sacraments, and I'm going to go home and read my Bible and do my thing, primary rosary, Catholic. I'll bet I'll bet you that if you had gone to Galatia or Corinth mm-hmm. or Ephesus, that there were some of those folks. That's yeah. just human. I just want my sacraments, and I'm content being in my in my it, bubble. There's, there's going to be pe- there's going to be people. You know, there's going to be people on all levels of involvement in in anything that you look at, right? So and 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 there's and that's fine. That I mean, there's there's room for people 
who uh, who are that way. But the trick is, uh, are they people who, even though they don't want to get super involved in the workings of the church and stuff, what are they doing when they go to work? Yeah. Are they living their Catholic values at work? And that's what's important. Are they living at them at the house and in their home and in the other organizations? When somebody tells a racist joke, do they raise their hand and say, hey, that's not right? You know, mm-hmm. it's that kind of stuff. So if they don't want to get super involved in all the machinations of the, you know, and, and the runnings and that kind of stuff, they're still living the mission of the church by their daily lives, by how yeah. they're doing it in their families and in their workplaces and in their social engagements and stuff. And I'm, and that's great. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's where you need them to do that. That's the call of the lady in Vatican II is the nine to five hours of the days when you need the lady to step up. You know, Pope Francis, Pope Francis wrote, this fabulous, uh, this fabulous apostolic exhortation, Gaudate et exultate, um, rejoice and be glad. Um, mm-hmm. And it's all about, it's about the call to holiness in the 21st century. And that's the kind of stuff that he talks about. He talks about what he called middle-class holiness, you know, and, and certainly not in a derogatory way. He talks about people Living lives of holiness by being parents, by you know, by yeah. being parents, and intentionally not just happen to be good parents, but people who are intentionally striving to be good parents because of their faith. I, you know? Lean Warner talks about intentional disciples, and I think that is the yeah. greatest term we could coin ever. Is you want to intentionally right. wake up in the morning and be a Catholic? Yeah. For people who are, I'm not sure. We, we kind of breezed over the Episcopi talk. But chapter three of Lumen Gentium explains the restructure of the episcopacy, and the, we talk about the regional church, regional bishops. Like the USCCB wasn't a thing until 1971. Yeah, that's where this comes from. People listening, chapter three, Lumen Gentium, you'll get your answers. But you brought a lot of stuff, and I want you to kind of. So we talked about the last year. So here we are. We have a national synthesis that's came out. Yeah. The, the the phase of the diocese is done. What, where are we going next? What should people be expecting next? Yeah, so um, it's always a big question, right? Yeah. Because, <laughs> because this is, you know, Francis is very clear, not just Francis. Um, we, are all, we are all very clear that this was never, um, and, Pope, and uh, Pope, my Bishop Mike and Carrie Frank and I all agreed that if all this was was a project, and if all we were doing is filing a report, um, we really didn't want any part of it. This, this has to be something, which is what Pope Francis intends. This has to be something that creates a way of being in the church, a way of being church, right? Mm-hmm. So, when, so when we say what's next, the what's next is how do we take what we've learned and how do we take some of the... Um, techniques, if you will, the practice, the praxis of being synodal and begin to spread it in okay. the diocese. Okay. So, so here's, here's where we go with some of that. At the same time, and this is a wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, the fact that we were called to, to have this, uh, this entire synod, at the same time that we're going through the road to renewal. Because the two of these, uh, I mean, synodality is about journeying together, about walking hand in hand, if you will. And that's exactly what the Road to Renewal and, and the Synod are doing here in the diocese. 
for, for people that may not be part of the Buffalo Diocese, the road to renewal here is about, it's not a corporate restructuring as some people have termed it. And those that see it that way, they're not, they're not really listening to what, to what this is about. We're looking at a tremendous decrease in the number of priests, mm -hmm. right? That's one factor that, that has caused us to rethink how we organize ourselves, how we gather together as church in the diocese. And so what we've, what we've done is to be willing to offer more opportunities for collaboration and for a lot less parochialism, which was another thing we heard in the Synod. Yeah. Why are we so parochial? Why can't, you know, it's like I'm here at, at, at St. Mark's Parish, and I'm just making these names up. That's not what we're kidding. But I'm, I'm here at St. X Parish, and, you know, and down the street is St. Y Parish and stuff. And why, why do I have to be angry with them? Yeah. Why, do I, why do I have to compete with them? It makes no sense, right? So, so the focus is on collaboration, and collaboration lives in synodality. And so what we're doing is we are moving towards uh, dealing with the pilot parishes and looking now that they have their pillar teams of, of what it means to be a family of parishes. And now we can help them along their way in taking the next step by being able to give them tools and the strengths and things to be able to live in a synodal fashion. Okay. So, uh, yeah. so then you have the, the clergy and the laity who have now come together to form this new family who are now able to, uh, to not just look at the parish as, um, well, who's the minister for this and who's the minister, not just the structure of stuff, but how do we live? How do we live as a family? What does the family look like? How do we have a true lay and clergy partnership and in, in, in how things run. How do we listen to each other? How do we ask the big question? The, the listening part, <coughs> excuse me, the listening part of, of synodality is asking the right questions. It's listening, but it's asking the right questions. How are we, how are we doing in our mission to the poor? How are we doing in our mission, you know, in our, in our liturgical worship? How are we doing in the faith lives and, and the development of our people? Those are the big questions. Mm -hmm. If you're going to get people together to just talk about, you know, whether or not to whether or not to put, you know, one of those diaper changer things in the, yeah. you know, in the bathroom in the back of the church, oh my gosh, uh, you know, that's not where the church lives. It's it's living in the big questions. It's listening, but asking listening once you ask the big questions. So that's, that's the, the next step, if you will, of where we go. And that's exactly what, what, Francis, what Francis has in mind. Let me read you a quote because he said this back in, back in June. Um, and I'm just going to read it because it's just so, it's, it just hits the mark. Um, because this is what he said once all the documents from all the different countries have started to come in. Mm -hmm. he, he reacted by saying this. The synod that we are now celebrating calls us to become a church that gets up, one that is not turned in on itself, 
but it's capable of pressing forward, leaving behind its own prisons and setting out to meet the world with the courage to open doors. That's what the sentence about. That's what we're, that's the what's next. The what's next is we listen to a whole lot of stuff. We know, we know from what we have in the diocesan report as well as in the, the national report, we know the pain that's out there. We know what our challenges are. We know what our hopes are. You know, we know what the, what people excites people. The commitment to the Eucharist, the the desire to, the, I mean, the, the way that people love their priests. That the, I mean, so many positive things as well. People yearning for liturgies that are vibrant and alive, and you know, uh, music that's good and and inspiring, and all, so many things that that people are hoping for. And now we take that and we use and we use all of that to get up, as he says, and to go and to set out to meet the world and to open doors. That's, that's the mission. The mission is not to stay within our own prisons, as he says, just constantly navel-gazing and trying to, what's wrong with our church, but to go out and to open the doors and to be a, a missionary discipleship in, in, into the world. How do we prevent this? So the, the, there's going to be a synod of bishops that kind of concludes this. We're all, they're all going to talk together. Right. It's not another ecumenical council. It's not Vatican III. It's just a synod of the yeah. bishops. Those things tend to just be the result of those. It's just another document that goes by the wayside. And how do we prevent this? all this work from not just becoming a document at the end of the day? Um, boy, I won't tell Francis you called his exhortations just another document. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but to your point, um, as well written as they are, and this is the first Pope who writes in language that, I mean, it's just like common person language. I mean, anybody yeah. can pick up pick up one of his apostolic exhortations and just read it. We're not reading Ratzinger or Baltazar anymore. Exactly. Nothing wrong with any of that. It's just that, you know, his stuff is so much more accessible. But the question about how does it not be, be, because his vision and Bishop Mike's vision and and those of us working on the Senate, the vision is this, the result of this is not the document. You know, his, if, you know, I'm sure that he will write another apostolic exhortation Absolutely. like he does for the other synod, the other synods. Um, but one of the things that he just did was he decided originally this, everybody was supposed to come together in 2023, you know, and that was going to be the synod. And now just last Sunday, he said, um, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> There's too much here. We're going to need two years. So we're going to come back in 2023 together. Then we're going to come back again in 2024 because it's that important. Because this isn't just about him writing a document. This is the reason that it's a synod on synodality is because this is this is a real deep dive into how we live as church from here on in. How do we what do we hope from our bishops who the American bishops are going to meet bishops from all these other geographical areas of the world? There are going to be issues that are unique to the American church. You and I know that. The political, the polarizing, yeah. the politics, abortion, it seems to be the only country that it talks about is America, right? Yeah. How are they going to go there and we're going to trust that they take something from other people to make our situations better without forgetting the problems we have? Because what I want to see out of the bishops in America 
is just to address the American issues. My fear and reservation always when I hear there's a synod of bishops is that they're not going to get the floor. They're going to talk about a bunch of other very important things that are happening in the world that I don't want to put down. But that's not going to come back to Buffalo, New York and make any changes. How do we hope that you get a bunch of bishops together who are going to bring their documents? Be like, hey, we're dealing with this. You know, is is have you been to those like workshops where you like get the color on your name tag and that's the first icebreaker group you're going to be in? Right. Is it going to be like raise your hand if you have a sex crisis and those bishops are going to go in meeting room A and talk? Like I don't know how how do you reasonably put those guys together to actually solve something? So it's. So the result of this is going to be less about solving problems, um, which, which I, I think that the universal church is expecting the individual bishops and the, and the Episcopal conferences to do on their own, right? Mm-hmm. So if there is something unique to the U.S. bishops, then it should be the USCCB, the, the U.S. Episcopal Conference, that deals with it. Um, if there's something that's unique to the Diocese of Buffalo, it should be Bishop Mike that deals with it. This is raising itself to a level of, of what it means to be church. The same way that, you know, the same way that Lumen Gentium kind of, kind of raised up um, um, and opened the doors of what it means to be, let me, let me use a different example. Um, Dei Verbum in the, yeah. the Word of God, translated as Word of God in, in the Second Vatican Council. Um, one of the things that that did was it made gave the message loud and clear that scripture is important in the lives of Catholics, right? Um, there was a famous scripture scholar, Daniel Harrington, who once said that when he was growing up, he remembered that a, a Bible salesman came to his door one time when he was a little kid. And his mom answered the door, and the guy was trying to sell her a Bible, and he said, she said, we don't need a Bible, we're Catholic. <laughs> and he became a scripture scholar. But, but in the same way that that opened the doors to all kinds of Catholic scholarship and scripture, mm-hmm. and so many more people now reading the Bible, and, and, and the way that we have those, the, so much more scripture in the liturgy, you know, all of those things open so many doors, the synod's going to be the same kind of thing. It's going to be a big thing about how we behave and not directed at trying to solve. The problems are there, and those and those are the things that will need to be worked on. But they're going to need to be worked on in the context of a co-partnership and a co-responsibility for the, for the mission of the church. And, and, okay. that's, and, and that's kind of the direction of where stuff is going. How does Pope Francis address the people who don't want things to change? Not because they're stuck in the past, but because they see it as a black and white church. There's yeah. people who, you know, we're, you you just said we're moving in this direction where we're going to work together in a co-partnership to, we're going to take what we heard and we're going to start like, you know, scripture opened the door to all these other things. We've, we've heard a lot about the LGBTQ community. And you're going to have people, all these great apostles I know are going to open up because of the result of now it's public that this is really an issue. Yeah. Then you're going to have a whole group of people who are just not going to take very well to that. And we've seen it in the reverse. There's people who 
because the Catholic Church is anti-abortion, there's people who left the church because of that. And there's people who would leave the church if we agreed with abortion. You can't please everyone, but in a true synod, synodality, if we're going to truly listen to everyone, how do we address that issue? I, I think that the way that it gets addressed is that you look at the tradition of the church with a capital T. Okay. Um, not necessarily the small T traditions, but a capital T tradition, the focus on Jesus Christ, the focus on, on evangelization and the outreach, the focus on a church that goes to the margins, as Pope Francis says, a church that meets the world and courage to open doors. If that's, what it, if that's the way that the church is defined, and there are people who don't want to be a part of that, I think the decision's on them. I, mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, we would not expect the church to say, oh, there's a few people. I mean, there's some people over here who don't like our teaching on abortion. Well, okay, then for them, we'll have, a, you know, we'll allow abortion. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, you, you just can't, mm -hmm. right? So there are some things that are, that are just what it means to be Catholic. And I think it's, I think part of this um, you know, when, the, when building up to the Second Vatican Council, one of the one of the things that they um, in, embraced was um, uh, I forget who used this phrase the best, but there was a French phrase that was that was used, race or small, and the and that French phrase means going back to the sources. You know, it's like so. What was uh, you know, what was going on in the beginning? Synods were going on in the beginning. Yeah. This, is how the, this is how the church was governed. What was going on in the beginning? Well, people gathered in homes for Eucharist. So how do we make it more like that? How, what was going on in the beginning? You know, people were very involved in what they understood as the word of God. How do we do more of that? So I think, I think that this the whole mission of the Synod here is the same kind of resource model going back to our roots, mm -hmm. back to our tradition with a capital T of what really the, you know, what we can glean to be the, the first initiative of Jesus and the apostles for what it was that they were setting up when, you know, when, mm -hmm. um, as a result of the resurrection. I, I think that French quote is attributed to, I think it's Conger. It may be Conger, yeah. If I yeah. correctly, because he was the one who kind of did the pre-work for Lumen Gentium, and out yeah. of that came this return to this regional yeah. church mentality. But what a great guy. Um, so I, I kind of want to focus more on Pope Francis explicitly. This is a big thing for him. This is the kind of thing a pope initiates that defines his papacy. Yeah. What has to happen that this is going to be his thing and the reason he's canonized in 20 years from now? <laughs> because we saw that with John the 23rd. He opened yeah. the Vatican. That was enough for the church to say, you are clearly someone special. Yeah. John Paul II in his writing, I'm sure Ratzinger will be canonized within years after his, his death. What ha I feel like this is going to define Francis's papacy because he has made some enemies to this point, and all popes do. Mm -hmm. But his have seemed more public. I would say you didn't hear about people bad mouthing JP two. Yeah. But you hear a lot of Francis slander, and I'm not a fan of it. But 
I think this is how he really sets it right. So what do you think this has to look like in order to secure his, I guess, talking about his, his legacy? Yeah. I, um, I don't really, I don't really know. Um, I'm not really sure that, that I can answer that question. I, I think, I think that if he does his best, and I believe that he will, to do his best to set the church up for success in its movement towards synodality, to open those doors, to set the platforms, to you know, to put in motion everything that's necessary from what he can do in his role. Beyond that, it you know, it it takes people participating. It takes yeah. people, you know, you can't blame you can't blame Paul the Sixth for the fact that there are still so many people who just wish Vatican II would go away. Mm-hmm. You know, I, absolutely, you can. So you know, I mean, Paul the Sixth, God bless him. I mean, he just he just did everything to take what was you know what was spoken in the council and to initiate it and to and to put it into practice as as quickly and as firmly as as he could. And because there's a bunch of people that still think that it's, you know, that it's an invalid council or whatever all kinds of people think, yeah. not, not his fault. I think I kind of see Francis, if I had to answer your, try to answer your question, I would say that I can kind of see Francis the same way. If he, if he puts in motion what the church needs to be successful in synodality, that's about all he can do. I hope he learned from Paul VI in it's okay to breathe from the end of a big event like this to an yeah. implication. I think a lot of criticism of Vatican II isn't the council itself. It's the two years later we had a new missile and you completely flipped everything on its head. I hope Francis sees that, you know what, if, even if I don't see the implementations, I trust my successor will begin the process. Yeah. That's my wish for Francis. Yeah. Let the synod conclude in 2024, and if I don't hear about it again until 2027, that's okay. I know yeah, it's it there. Okay the work's been done. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be okay with me. I, I think, you know, I think there were part. I think there were part of a church that, that in many cases moves too slowly. Okay. And so I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather see some rapidity to this. Get it. I would, I'd rather say, if this is truly where we're going, and, and the Spirit is truly asking us to move this way, I, I don't think, I don't think that we should be telling the Spirit. Ah, it seems a little fast, Holy Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> you know. It's like, let's go. Got it. You know, giddy up. Is there anything else that people should be looking forward to from your, so in Buffalo, our diocese, just your diocese in general, what would be the next thing that we should be keeping our eyes on? Um, I, you know, I would say just, uh, just continue to see possibilities where we, where we can. It's, um, we're moving as quick, as quickly as we can, um, but we don't want to move so quickly that we are leaving people behind. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that with, you know, as people, everyone will be touched by the road to renewal. Yeah. And because of that, um, the synod will be a part of that. So, um, so I would say that for people in the Diocese of Buffalo, watch for the opportunity to behave in a synodal way okay. as, as you begin to move through the road to renewal. Ask the big questions. Ask the questions about mission. Ask the questions about uh, about reaching to the margins. Ask the questions about you know about how we open doors and how we engage the world. That's that's why we're doing what we're doing. Can we see a possibility of a more of a permanent 
like not having listening sessions all the time, but that kind of structure. Yeah. You see possibly like anytime I have a question, I want to be able to voice it today. Yeah. And, and, and I think within, within the family structures and within the parish structures, I know that there's a couple of parishes already who, who have their pastoral councils structured in synodal ways. They don't deal with the minutia of, of running the, you know, the little reports about this and that. I mean, I understand that you got to do some business and everything. Yeah. But the reason they come together as a pastoral council is to ask the big questions. You know, how are we doing in our mission to whatever? How are we doing in our outreach to the youth? How are we, not just a report from the youth minister of how many people came to the pizza party, but really asking a bigger, well, how are we doing overall? And what are we doing to reach out to the to the youth and not just lay it on the shoulders of the youth minister? You know what, I, you know what I'm saying? I do, yeah. So um, so I think that's what people ought to watch for is, is as we move through the road to renewal, look for ways where we can behave in a synodal way. Um, and, um, and I think that that's going to make all the difference in, in our success in the road to renewal. Absolutely. Oh, and because it is so new for everyone. Yeah, exactly. This is such a new, both the synod, a synod yeah. on synodality has never been done, and yeah. this renewal is so new to us. It's like, and, and it's unfortunate. I mean, people, people hear that the phrase synod on synodality, and it sounds like double talk and gobbledygook, and it's like, oh, there's another thing that I won't understand, and you know, um, but gosh, it's really, it's really about. Um, how we live as church in the 21st century. Do you think we can expect to see Pope Francis address each region once he hears of us? Like, I feel like that's such a reaffirming. Like, I love hearing yeah. from the Pope. Yeah. The The school I attend had a conference like three weekends ago, and we got a letter from uh, um, Ratzinger just giving his blessing, papal, you know, his yeah. papal blessing, just like, hey, that was, that's cool. I yeah. would love to see Francis. And he just met with the uh, NCYC, uh -huh. Delegates of America. So, like, I wonder, do you think that would be prudent of Francis to maybe address the American church with their problems? I don't think so. I, because I think, um, I mean, there have been things like that before where, you know, the uh, Ecclesia in America, I think John Paul II did something like that. Somebody. Yeah, he there's... had a big document after Denver or leading up to Denver. Right, right. And and that's part of the pro part of the problem is that um, there are so there are so many nuances to individual regions um, that I think I think that if Francis took some of the larger themes, okay, um, and and from what he understood from his American advisors, you know, whether it's Cardinal O'Malley or, or, uh, or Bishop uh, or uh, Cardinal uh, Supic or, uh, or now Cardinal McElroy out on the West Coast, you know, if, if he got from those advisors, you know, kind of how to apply those themes and said something broadly, there might be, but then you'd have to do it for every, for every, have to you know, it's like, um, why pay more attention to America than anywhere else? We we tend to think, um, we tend to be awful in America, thinking that you know that we're like the only ones on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, why aren't they paying attention to us? You know. So, um, do you think we'll see a more broader, just universal? I would think so. Because he's going to have to say something. 
He, he can't yes. do this and not put out a document after this. No, that's <laughs> right. And I, and I expect he'll do an apostolic exhortation like he has for the other synods. Um, and uh, that's going to be a challenge. Because yeah. he's... But, the, but challenge or not, I have to say, I, I, I think that what he will end up producing will be so worth reading. And you know? I, I think he's hit the nail on the head with the timing. We're 60 years out from Vatican II. Yeah. It takes about 100 years to implement a council. Yeah. This is stuff that was talked about. Yeah. You know, there's so much of Vatican II that wasn't implemented correctly or wasn't implemented at all or was completely just overlooked or whatever reason it is. I think it's it's good we're finally circling back. Yeah. He challenged everyone by 2025 to read the documents again. Yeah. Something big's coming. We need right. to do something by then. Yeah. We can't sit on our hands any longer. Somebody once said... Um, Somebody once said Christianity hasn't failed. It's, uh, I don't know, I'm going to screw up the quote, so you can just eliminate this, but I, uh, I forget what it was. The point is that you can't say that something has failed if it's never really been tried. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And I think that's true about Vatican II. And I think that that's kind of, he keeps pointing back to Vatican II. He keeps reminding us we are a Vatican II church. Absolutely. We're not going back. We're going forward. We're opening doors. We're engaging the world. You know, buckle up. Yeah, honestly. And get ready for the implementation of the way Vatican II is read by each individual. Because Vatican II can be read drastically different. Yeah. So that'll be unique. Because there's a lot of people who defend that. Well, Vatican II said this. And other people are going to tell you, you have no idea what you're talking about. Vatican II said this. And I think that's unique. It was written in such a way where everyone can look at it differently and then take it to your church, implement it. But it's not entirely true. I mean, there are some, there are a lot of things, a lot of things in those documents that um, everything has the opportunity to be misinterpreted. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's been some misinterpretation of, of yeah. what's of what's in there. But and, I, I just I just think that it, that the bishops, that the whole council of bishops that were gathered for the council. Um, I think that what they envisioned um, started to move, and then a whole lot of people got scared and pulled back. And I, I don't think that we've, I don't think we've really engaged with, with what they had intended. So we'll, we'll see. Maybe we'll see. synodality helps to move us in that direction. Exactly. 49 more years until we yeah. can say we hit our point. <laughs> if you had to recommend just one Catholic book you've ever read in your life to people, what would it be? Oh, Lord. Like one you think would be a good time, maybe necessary to revisit now with the renewal of the Synod, kind of getting people, and you can't cop out with the Bible or the Catechism, because I've had people try that. No, that's not. Um, Boy, oh boy. Um, What was the name of that? There's a there's a book by Albert Nolan, who was the um, who was the provincial for the Dominicans, who wrote a book about Jesus. I think it was called Jesus Before Christianity. Okay. It's a phenomenal look into who Jesus was and what he said, right down to rethinking. You know, there's been so much, especially after 2,000 years, there's been so much piled on, you know, of, of what people, Albert Schweitzer once said that the way that people see Jesus is, is they look down the well. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you see the reflection. It's like, oh, I see what Jesus looks like. Um, and so there's been so much piled on him. And so he does this marvelous job of, of what Jesus was saying and who he was speaking to and what, and what he was about. Jesus before Christianity, that's before the thing. Christianity. Albert Nolan. I would say start there. Yeah. Because go go back. This is what it's about. It's about it's about um, it's about the Jesus that um, that shook things up. It's about the Jesus that that came to call us to a conversion and call us to building this kingdom, yeah. um, this kingdom of the Father, and not the kingdom of the world. And um, and if we're going to claim him as king, we better know who we're following. Yeah. yeah. I think that that book is a great start for really getting to know. Going back to the practical understanding that God came here. Yeah. God walked here, and we should return to that mentality and not get away from it. So yeah. I just read a book by Matthew Levering. It's the theological understanding of Vatican II. Okay. And it kind of touches upon the Vatican II documents are dense. Some of the commentators are dense. He, he tackles a lot about this listening, this kind of returning to this regional church, the episcopacy, the role of each person in the church, and he takes Lumen Gentium and mirrors it. And I think understanding ecclesiology during this synod is vital because mm. of the relationship between who we want to be, but you have to, what is church before who, you know, you have to know what you are before you decide who you want to become. Mm-hmm. Just like you have a Jesus. You got to know what Jesus is before. Yes. Yeah. So, but how about favorite Catholic movie? Just curious. My favorite Catholic movie? Yeah. Um, it's my favorite Catholic movie is actually. Um, it wasn't called Romero. There was a TV. There was a Hollywood version of Oscar Romero, Saint Oscar Romero. Yes. Um, that was the Raúl Julia starred in that. That was decent, but there was an even better one, Monsignor. That was the name of it, Monsignor. <clears throat> and it's just um, a marvelous, uh, it's not a fun film. It's not It's not light. <laughs> yeah, that's something you watch with the kids. <laughs> because, right, exactly. But it's this, uh, it's this wonderful movie about, um, about St. Oscar Romero and how he, how he started out once he was made the Bishop of San Salvador. Um, and he had responsibility for for an entire country in the midst of a crisis. And his first reaction was, "Let's not rock any boats. Let's not, you know, let's just let's just play along, you know, everybody. Let's just get along to go along, and everybody. Let's just, you know, calm down." Um, and then a couple of things happened that opened his eyes. And before you know it, he's up on he's up on the ammo, and he's preaching about about violence, and he's preaching about the need for peace, and he's preaching about the need to stop torturing the people in the streets and stuff, and and eventually got him killed. Um, I was lucky enough in 20, I want to say 2016. I think it was 2016. I went with. Um, the Mary Knowles to mm-hmm. um, to El Salvador on a mission trip, <clears throat> and I was lucky enough to visit the 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 little um, the little church where he was saying mass when he was killed. Wow! 
and uh, got to kneel uh, right on the spot where he died, you know, um, a martyr. Uh, how often do you get to do that? Yeah. You know? uh, just a dramatic moment for me. And, uh, yeah, so I would I would say my favorite Catholic film, yeah, Monsignor. Okay. I love the Latin American Catholic Church and the people. I My daily devotion is right now St. Jose Maria Escobar, uh-huh. his quotes. They're like, you want to talk about Francis having easy language to understand? I could read this to a first grader and they're going to understand what's going on. But it's yeah. so profound because it is so simple. Yeah. You know, the, he, he encapsulates the simplicity of God in a way that I've never read in a saint before. And we just don't talk about the Latin American saints. It's a shame. Oscar Romero is another yeah. great mar- and modern 20th century. Right. Modern, modern martyr. Yeah. People think Kobe's the only one that existed in the 20th century. Right. Yeah. Great saint, yeah. but so it's interesting. Well, yeah. again, I appreciate you coming. I hope Thanks. this so opened my you. eyes to the synod. Um, I look forward to seeing what the bishops and Francis yeah. come out with. And I hope, Change is made. It needs to be. We've none of us. No matter which camp you sit in, you can't deny change needs to be made. Sure, and watch, and watch what happens here in the diocese. I think you know. I think it's going to continue to, um, it's going to continue to flourish and going to continue to take hold, um, little by little. It's you know, it's not one of those, um, you know, cataclysmic changes when you're talking about the, the the impact of the synod. It'll be little by little, and and there'll be changes in. Um, how we approach things, how we deal with each other, how we make decisions, how, how we live as church in the Diocese of Buffalo. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank All you. Right. Thanks.